We embarked three weeks ago upon a journey through the book of Romans, what I'm calling the, the Grand Canyon of gospel exposition in the Bible. Thus far in the letter, Paul has introduced himself to the Christians in the capital of the Roman Empire, described his calling from God to preach Christ among the Gentile world, and then announced the theme of his letter, the glorious gospel of God, which he declares in verse 16 to be the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is powerful to save because, he tells us in verse 17, it reveals the righteousness of God. Not merely the fact of God's righteousness, but the gift of God's righteousness given to sinners by faith when they trust upon Jesus Christ. And now, having so poignantly and compellingly celebrated the good news of Christ upon which he plans to expound, he turns a corner and spends a substantial amount of ink and parchment delivering some very bad news. The theme of the second half of chapter 1, which we'll spend the next four sermons exploring, is the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Now, I realize that God's wrath is not a cozy and cuddly subject. Many preachers and practitioners of Christian ministry do their best to avoid it. And if we're being honest, probably most of us, most of us in this room would somewhat prefer to be able to avoid it as well, or at least to quickly cruise past it on the way to brighter, happier themes. But of course, good news isn't really received as good news unless it answers a deep need. And so rather than just saying, the gospel of God is really good news, just take my word for it, Paul launches immediately into a harrowing depiction of the desperate condition of fallen humanity that makes the gospel necessary and wonderful when it arrives. And so on we go into the dark terrain of God's wrath against human sin. Verses 18 through 32, the back half or so of chapter 1, are really a cohesive unit, but we're going to move more uh, fairly slowly through them. My aim today is only to make it through verse 23, and then to divide the remaining nine verses uh, into three separate sermons. So here are the headings that will follow today. If you're taking notes and you want to know where we are uh, in the outline, the three headings will follow are this. Number one, the reality of God's wrath. Number two, the reason for God's wrath. And then finally, our response to God's wrath. I'm going to read for you verses 18 through 23, and I'll invite you out of reverence for God and his word to stand with me as I read this passage. Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. You can take your seats. The reality of God's wrath, it's there in black and white, plain to see as this passage begins. The way that we'll kind of walk through these verses is really to answer, ask and answer four questions that I think the text raises naturally. The first one is this, and I've got an image for you, a slide to help you uh, follow along and, and, and see what these are. The first question is this, why are we in need of salvation? Why are we in need of salvation? And the answer to that is because the wrath of God is revealed against us, right? Because of the wrath of God revealed against us. You can see the the verse begins with the word for, which points us back to what came before it in verses 16 and 17, namely the gospel's power to save those who believe, which raises the question, why do we need to be saved? Why do we need a gospel that's powerful to save unless there's some predicament that we're in? What do we need to be saved from? And so verse 18 is an answer to that anticipated question. What must, be, what must we be saved from? The wrath of God, which is revealed from heaven. Notice also, the wrath of God is revealed That's a present tense verb, not the wrath of God will one day be revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness, but the wrath of God is revealed. In other words, the wrath of God is a present day reality, not only a future experience of the wicked. Now, it certainly does have that aspect, as for example, in Romans 2, 5, which speaks of sinners storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. But here, God's wrath is said to be presently, continually revealed from heaven. The clearest revelation of his wrath in the present day is seen in verses 24, 26, and 28 in the repeated phrase that God gave them over to their lusts and impurities, etc. And those are verses that we'll consider in the following, uh, the next three uh, Sundays. So I can't say much more here, but... Observe for now that the present reality of God's wrath, in addition to the more obvious future dispensing of it in final judgment. So the wrath of God is currently, presently, in the world being revealed. In the same way that he told us in verse uh, 17 that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, now the wrath of God is revealed in the very same way sense. God's wrath is certainly not the predominant theme of Romans, so we don't want to paint an imbalanced picture here. Remember, the theme of, the gospel, of Romans is the gospel. It's good news. It's what God has done to rescue sinners through Christ. But nevertheless, it is a theme that recurs and provides a necessary backdrop for our understanding of the gospel. 
Indeed, you might say that the wrath of God is kind of like the black cloth upon which a diamond is, is laid in order to draw out in starkest possible contrast all the beauties and intricacies of the diamond itself. And so the wrath of God is the backdrop for the glorious revelation of God's righteousness given as a gift to sinners who trust in Christ. God's wrath appears in all four of the major sections of the book. You may remember that our big, broad outline for the book is four sections, chapters 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 to 11, and then 12 through 16. In all four of those major sections, the wrath of God makes an appearance. He talks about it more at length in this first section, in these first four chapters, in 118, 25, 28, 35, 415. You don't need to catalog all that. I'm just giving you a little rundown here. And then in the second section, in chapter 5, verse 9, in the third section, in chapter 9, verse 22, and in the final section, chapter 12, verse 19. So you can't get around the wrath of God. Even if you were to be like, okay, he talks about the wrath of God in the first part of the book, but let's get past that and move on. Well, it keeps coming up, even in the later sections of the book. So we can't skirt around it and be faithful to what God has revealed to us in his word through this uh, letter to the Romans. So the wrath of God is an important and recurring theme in the book. Well, how about a definition? What is the wrath of God? All this talk about the reality of it and the presence of it, what does it mean? Here's the best definition I found, and this is from John Murray. The wrath of God is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. I'll say that again. The holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. So you see, it's more than only action, although it certainly manifests itself in divine action, to be sure. The wrath of God is, is God's attitude towards sin and unrighteousness. It's the way he feels about everything in his world that does not align with or reflect his righteous character. His wrath is stirred up because what he sees in his world doesn't match who he is. It does not align with what he created it to be. It does not reflect himself and his goodness. Psalm 7 verse 11 tells us God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Why does he feel this way? Why does he feel this indignation about sin? Because he's a giant cosmic grouch? Of course not but rather because he delights in goodness and righteousness. He delights in what is good and right, and so by definition, he must abhor anything and everything that demeans or defaces goodness and righteousness. He rejoices in and celebrates and delights in what is good and right and just and true. And so when there is something in his world and among his creatures that belittles that, that contradicts that, that is not good and not righteous and not just and not true, he must hate it in order to be righteous. So the wrath of God is his revulsion toward Everything in his world that contradicts his holiness. A side note here, lest you think that God's wrath is only bad news. A God who does not feel wrath and indignation against sin and unrighteousness is a God who has no interest 
in setting right what is wrong and in bringing an end to injustice. The fact that God is so deeply revulsed by the presence of evil and injustice in his world is actually powerful proof that every abuse in this broken world will be repaid and every unjust cause will ultimately come to ruin. And the reason we have that confidence is because the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The kingdom of God for which we long is predicated upon this reality. If you hope for a kingdom where there is no injustice and there is no evil and there is no suffering and sorrow and death, then you must believe and hope in a God whose wrath is kindled against unrighteousness and injustice. The reality of God's wrath. So that's what we see at the beginning of verse 18. God's wrath is revealed. It is present. It is clear. It is a reality that we must accept and reckon with. The second heading, the reason for God's wrath. God's wrath is revealed. Why? What is the reason for God's wrath? And here's a slide to help you with that. What have we done to elicit God's wrath? We have suppressed the truth about himself that he has revealed to us. We have suppressed the truth about himself that he has revealed to us. Look again at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? By their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, his wrath of God is revealed against something in particular, namely... All ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. This is a broad men here just speaking of humanity. He is, his wrath is kindled against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The word ungodliness there essentially means ways in which we are not like God. We're just unlike him. To be godly is to be like him, to resemble him, to reflect him. Therefore, to be ungodly is not to reflect him, not to resemble him. It's ways that we are not like him, particularly with respect to his goodness and his holiness and these things, in ways that we are not good and not holy and not righteous. We are ungodly, ungodlike. And unrighteousness is the inverse of what is revealed about God in the gospel, namely his righteousness. Perhaps you remember our definition of God's righteousness as revealed in verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed. My definition there is God's righteousness is the character of God by which he unfailingly, eternally does that which is right and upholds the honor of his name. So human unrighteousness, then, is simply the negation of that reality. Human unrighteousness is our failure to do what is right and uphold his honor. So unrighteousness is the negation of his goodness and rightness and his honor. So his wrath is revealed against our, the ways in which we are not like God, our ungodliness, and the ways in which we actively negate his holy character and his righteous ways by doing that which is not right and that which does not honor him. And then we're told something specific that we do at the tail end of verse 18, who, 
men, all people, who by their unrighteousness, and notice the repetition of the word, that's important, this is emphasis here, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. Now the truth, I think the context spells out for us basically what truth is in view here. Namely, that which God has revealed about himself to all mankind. We'll flesh that out in a second. But I think that's when he says that mankind has suppressed the truth, it's referring to the truth about God that he has revealed to us. And to suppress means to hold it down, right? Forcefully, to keep something from emerging. So we human beings have observed something about God that he has revealed to us, and we have willfully pushed it down, covered it up. What could this be? Well, that's the next question, and so we all have a slide for this one as well. How has God revealed himself to us? If we have suppressed the truth that he's revealed, what is that truth? What is it that he's revealed that we're trying to cover up and get away from? How has God revealed himself to us? In our conscience and in his creation. In our conscience and in his creation. And you can see this in verses 19 and 20. So look at verse 19 one more time. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, some translations here render that first phrase, what can be known about God is plain to them, as actually something like it is evident within them. The New American Standard goes that way. Some others do as well. And that's probably correct. It translates the simple Greek preposition in as in or within, and that is most commonly what that preposition does. So it's not only that, that something about God has been made plain to us, it's that something about God has, made, has been made plain within us. There's something in us that he has placed that reveals himself. Moreover, Paul seems to have in mind more than what, we, what can be seen with the eyes, but also what can be intuitively known. He explicitly uses the word conscience down in, chap, in chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 16, speaking there about the role of the conscience in condemning sinners as lawbreakers. Right? Our own conscience speaks against us because we know something about what's right and something about what's wrong, and we do the wrong thing anyway. Right? And so there's nearby contextual evidence to support the idea that this internal witness of conscience may be in view here in verse 19. And so I think when he says what can be known about God is plain to them, what he means is something about God has been placed within human beings, all human beings. There's something innate within every human being that knows intuitively something about this God. Tom Schreiner says, God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind his existence and power so that they are instinctively recognized when one views the created world. There's something embedded in the human heart and mind that is ignited when God's world is surveyed. So in other words, all human beings have an innate sense of God's presence and power. 
There's an echo of this idea in Ecclesiastes 3.11, which tells us that he, God, has set eternity in the hearts of men. Something in the human heart recognizes and responds to, and perhaps even longs for, transcendence and something eternal, and indeed more specifically, the person of this creator God. But beyond the internal subjective witness of conscience, all human beings are also given the external objective witness of God's creation. Look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So how has God revealed to human beings? Uh, How is God revealed to human beings in this objective way? In the things that have been made. In the world God has made, he is plainly evident. Let's just talk straight for a sec. Isn't this obvious? Can't you deduce by observing the world in which we live that someone must have made all this? Surely you can't walk to the rim of the Grand Canyon, survey the beauty and mystery of that vast landscape, and walk away going, man, erosion is so cool. A cake must have had a baker. A watch must have had a watchmaker. A canyon must have had a carver. A universe must have a creator. It's as simple as that. And his world has been telling us this from the beginning, hasn't it? Listen to Psalm 19, the first few verses of that psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Seas and skies, stars and planets, mountains and valleys, wind and rains, surely these things speak to our hearts of a creator God who set these things in place. In fact, it's so abundantly clear from the evidence available that the only reason one might take it all in and say, Well, I don't really think God exists. This must all just be the product of blind natural processes is simple foolishness. This is exactly what the Bible says that it is. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's just simple foolishness. And once you've decided on that, once your heart has settled on, there's not a God. God doesn't exist then there is no explanation for the marvels and intricacies of our universe that will make even the slightest bit of sense. It's like a game that we're all playing. And that's exactly why we're told in the last phrase of verse 20 quite plainly, so they are without excuse. They're without excuse. How has God revealed himself to us? In our conscience and in his creation. He has placed an internal witness in every human being that recognizes and responds to his presence and power. And he's placed evidences all around us in the very air that we breathe 
and the sun that rises and sets and the rain that falls and the animals that flutter around our homes and everything else that we see and experience in creation, evidence of his presence and power and goodness. And people, all of us, at some level in some way, walk away from that and come up with some other conclusion. There is no God, says the fool in his heart. So there's no excuse. There's no defense to be made for this disregard of God. He has revealed it to them. He has made it evident within them. He has made his presence plain by what they see, by what has been made. And yet, we suppress this truth. We push that truth down. We don't want to see God there. Robert Yarborough says, It is a given in much modern Western thought that God, if there is one, is essentially unknowable. Paul argues here that this position is not philosophical brilliance, but obstinate misinterpretation of the cosmic evidence. Surely everything cannot be known about God, but make no mistake, God has made known that about himself which he intended to make known, and he's made it evident to all human beings. And all human beings are therefore accountable for that knowledge of him which he has made known, every one of us. What about you, friends? What do you see when you look at the world around you? What do you sense in your heart of hearts concerning the presence and power of God? Do you acknowledge his presence, marvel at his power and goodness, and bow to his authority? Or are you suppressing the knowledge of God, trying to convince yourself that it's not real? It's made up. It's a fairy tale, an opiate for the masses. What does your heart say to you about the wisdom and power and beauty behind the sun that shines on you this very day? God has revealed himself to us in our conscience and in his creation. How have human beings responded to his self-revelation? Remember verse 18, we've suppressed the truth about him. Here's our next question. How? Have we suppressed the truth about him? Namely, we have failed to worship him and we have exchanged his glory for idols. We have failed to worship him and we've exchanged his glory for idols. He goes on, verse 21. For although they knew God, and four pointing us back to that phrase in verse 20, they're without excuse. There's no excuse for this denial of God. Because although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Okay, what does it mean by they knew God? Well, he's referring there to exactly the way described above. We're innately aware of his deity and power by virtue of the internal witness of conscience and the external witness of creation. So that's what he means by they knew him. 
doesn't mean necessarily that they were all in a, in a right relationship to him. But they knew what he had revealed about himself in their consciences and in creation. And they've suppressed that truth. How? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You know a word for that? Worship. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That is, we have not worshipped him. Human beings created by God in the image of God for the glory of God have instead opted not to worship him. I'm not going to honor him as God, as the creator, as the ruler, as the one to whom I'm accountable. And I'm not going to give him thanks. I know you made this great, beautiful world, God. I know you gave me life and breath and everything else. But I'm, I'm good. I got this on my own. We don't honor him. We don't give him thanks. That is, we fail to worship him. What does that look like? Verses 21 and 22, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Futile in their thinking has to do, I think, with intellectual vanity or emptiness. In other words, there's going to be endless pursuits of wisdom and truth and pontificating about what's real and the nature of life and what's good and right. But it's going to be useless. It's going to be fruitless because it's disconnected from the basic reality of God's power and presence and his authority over us. So once the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, then no amount of books written or degrees earned is going to make this intellectual endeavor worth anything. It's much ado about nothing, as the bard said. Intellectual vanity. And then when it says their foolish hearts were darkened, I think that has to do with more than just thinking, although your thinking is clearly involved in it. I think this has to do with a moral corruption. They're, they're futile, they were futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is, they became intellectually vain and empty and they became morally corrupt. We started to misjudge what's good and what's right and what's bad and what's wrong. Some cases we started actually denying that things that God said were good are good and rejecting them. And in other cases, actually saying things that God said are bad, we're saying those things are good. We celebrate those things as basic human rights. We're all backwards. And it's not just because our thinking is messed up. It's because our hearts, our wills are broken. We're morally corrupt as well as intellectually vain. And the result of all that is claiming to be wise, we became fools. What does that sound like? Remember the story of Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden? God gave them a beautiful world. God made them for fellowship with each other and with himself. They were in good relationship with the creation. And then a slippery serpent came along and caused them to doubt God's word. And what were we told there as Eve was considering that fruit? She said when, when she saw it was pleasing to the eye, and desirable to make one wise, she took the fruit and she ate it. What was she looking for? Wisdom. 
Adam and Eve thought, well, if we eat this fruit that God told us not to eat, we're actually going to know stuff. We're actually going to be wise about what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong. We'll be able to make those judgments for ourselves. We don't need God to tell us what we should enjoy and what we should avoid. We can make those judgments for ourselves because we'll be wise. And so claiming to be wise, they became fools. That was true of the first plunge into sin. And it's true of every human heart today that does not bow to the authority and beauty and goodness of God as he's revealed himself to us. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, Paul exhorts uh, the, the Christians there, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. There's that same language. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. There's futile thinking, there's darkened hearts, there's moral corruption, all of it is wrapped up in there. That's how the quote-unquote Gentiles are living, by which Paul in that context just means pagans, people who are not worshiping God and indeed are usually worshiping false gods. This is the story of human beings since the fall. And what has that led them to do? Verses 21 and 22, they knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. In verse 23, here's what we did. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Does this sound like a good trade? To trade the glory of the immortal creating God for pictures, representations of earthly stuff, stuff that dies and is broken and is violent? How is this a good trade? This is idolatry, plain and simple. Exchanging the glory of God for the lesser glory of created things. This is what human beings do. Notice the downward progression that's listed there in verse 23. We went first from the immortal God. We used to have his glory and honor his glory. But now we're, we've moved downward to mortal man. And then birds and animals, and then creeping things down and down and down and down. Lower and lower we go in our idolatry, in our rejection of God. Now, there probably aren't actual physical statues or something that you worship, although I wouldn't rule that out. But what has replaced God in your heart? What or whom is the real object of your worship? What is it that you believe you can't live without? Or that thing that if you could just obtain it, you'd finally be happy? When we make these exchanges, we're like the guy who, when the sun shines on him, looks to the ground and worships his shadow. It's dark, it's foolish. It's futile. 
1 John 5, 21, that letter concludes with this simple exhortation. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the condition of human beings. We have taken what God has revealed about himself within our own consciences and in the world around us that he's made known, and we cover it up. We press it down. We turn away. I don't want to see that. I don't want to think about that. I want to call my own shots. I want to judge what's right and wrong for myself. I want to be the boss of my own life and destiny. And we reject and dishonor and belittle the God who made us and who loves us. And against all of this ungodliness and unrighteousness, make no mistake, the wrath of God is revealed. It's against us in these ways. But we've got to talk about our response. Our response, not only to God's wrath specifically, certainly to that, but to God's revelation of himself. He's made himself known to us by the world that he's made and by the innate sense of his presence that he's embedded in our consciences. The question for you this morning is, what will you do with it? What will you do with it? There's three possible responses that I can think of to the knowledge of God that he's given us. In conscience and creation, three possible responses. Number one, you can deny it. You just put your fingers in your ears and just go, no, that's not true. I don't believe that. I don't accept that. I deny that this God is really there. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is an option. You can choose to be a fool, to put your hands over your eyes, to seek to dull the voice of your own conscience and carry on living as if there's no God. But is that safe? Given the reality of God's wrath that we've spoken of today, how do you think you might fare in that scenario if it turns out you've been wrong all along? Is it safe to deny him? Another response is you can distort it. You could outright deny it, or you could take what's there and just kind of twist it into something else. You could follow a false religion, worship a false god. You can trade the glory of God for the pursuit of images. Again, maybe not likely to be actual physical statues of stuff, but maybe the images are like dollar bills, sports trophies, fancy cars, personal pleasure mediated by screens, all kinds of images that we might pursue in exchange for God. But are those better? At the end of your life, will you really be glad that you've sacrificed so much for money, recognition, status, entertainment, pleasure? Will that exchange prove worth it in the end? And again, what if you're wrong? That there's, and there's really a creator God to whom you're not only accountable, but to whom you owe highest honor and highest worship. What's to become of you in light of the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven? If you've spent your life 
not worshiping him, but worshiping some created thing or some lesser pursuit. You could distort it, but I don't know if it'd be wise. Third response I can think of is this. You can declare it. You can declare the glory of God revealed in creation and in your conscience. You can look at the beauty and goodness of the world around you and turn to him in thanksgiving and praise. You can acknowledge the God who created you, recognize that you are accountable to him, and submit your life to his lordship. And if you've been a glory exchanger up to this very moment, I want you to know it's not too late for a new start. The God who created you and the world that you live in, who's revealed himself to you in so many ways, has also provided a way for you to draw near to him. We've seen it proclaimed and pictured in baptism today. The life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, absorbs the wrath that has been stored up by our unrighteousness and ungodliness. If you've exchanged the glory of God for some lesser thing, turn to him in simple repentance and faith and say, I want you to be the Lord and ruler of my life. I reject these false gods and these lesser images and pursuits in favor of your glory that I've known about all along and I just haven't really been honest with myself about what's there. You can do that. He has sent us a wrath absorber, a sin bearer in his son Jesus Christ so that the wrath of God revealed from heaven against unrighteousness and and ungodliness does not have to be the last word. Because in the gospel, in the good news about Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not just as a fact, but as a gift to be received by faith from anyone who will turn from their sin and call upon Jesus Christ as Savior. Let's pray together. God, give us your grace that we might bow beneath your word, that we might be honest with what we see about you in the world you've made and in the very hearts that you've given us, that we might respond to the revelation of your wrath against our unrighteousness and ungodliness with sorrow, with humility, with repentance, and that we might turn to Jesus Christ in simple faith day after day trusting in him and his finished work for our eternal life and hope. Do this work in us. In Christ's name we pray.